And without further ado, open your Bibles with me to Micah chapter 3, if you would. Micah chapter 3, we continue pressing through the minor prophets. Why are we going through the minor prophets? Uh, It's not because we want you to have some trivial knowledge of the crackly pages in your Bible. It's not just because we were looking for a sermon series that we are not all that familiar with. We're going through the minor prophets because God tells us that every word in his word is profitable, is useful. We understand that the minor prophets have something to tell us about God so that we might worship him, so that we might obey him. And as we opened up the book of Micah, uh, last week we went through chapters 1 and 2, and we were reminded of God's perfect justice and God's perfect faithfulness. God speaks to his people who are in rebellion and sin. He warns them about what's coming, and we know that for the northern kingdom, for Samaria, for Israel, uh, it's not that the warning was too late, it's that they were too stubborn, too hard. They are going to refuse to turn, and the northern kingdom's judgment is pretty well set. In fact, in Micah's lifetime, Assyria will come and will carry off the northern kingdom. But the bulk of chapter 1 and all of the rest of chapter 2 was directed toward Judah with the warning that if you carry on down the road that Israel is going, then Judah can expect the same fate that you cannot follow after sin and somehow expect God's blessing to come upon you. And we know that the Micah 2 ended like so many sections in the Minor Prophets do. And that is with this drastic turn toward hope. There's no change in the lives of the people, but all of a sudden the prophets change and they speak of this time to come when there's going to be restoration because, again, God is faithful. God is faithful to his promises to discipline his people. God is faithful to deal with sin where he finds it, but God is also faithful to restore where he promises to restore. He he talked about a time that was coming when the people would be gathered and when they would follow after one king. And as we move into Micah 3 and Micah 4 today, that idea of kingship, rulership, lordship is what really kind of penetrates these two chapters. It's what holds them together. So if you're not there already, find your way to Micah chapter 3, And let's think through what it looks like to follow the leader. Micah chapter 3, I'm going to read verses 1 through 4 to set the stage for where we're going today. Micah 3, beginning in verse 1, this is what God's word says. And I said, hear you heads of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel. Is it not for you to know justice? You who hate the good and love the evil, who tear the skin from off my people and their flesh from off their bones, who eat the flesh of my people and flay their skin from off them and break their bones in pieces. And chop them up like meat in a pot, like flesh in a cauldron. Then they will cry to the Lord, but he will not answer them. He will hide his face from them at that time because they have made their deeds evil. Let's pray. Lord, it's a serious charge when leaders fail to love those that they are entrusted with. And Lord, we know that that extends not just to Israel and to Judah, but to those of us who would lead who would have others follow us. So Lord, help us to think carefully today, uh, not about our leadership potential or leadership strategies, but Lord, help us to think on the good shepherd, our Savior, Jesus Christ, and how we are simply called to be like him in all that we do. Lord, we ask that you would open our eyes so that we might behold wonderful things from your word. Lord, we ask that as we see your word, we wouldn't just understand the content, but Lord, we pray that its power would transform us, that we would be a people who obey, not because we're smart enough to get it right, but Lord, because your spirit has made us able to please you. We know that without faith, it is impossible to please God, but with faith in the right object of our faith, 
you can do remarkable things. So Lord, we worship you, we praise you, we ask that you would speak to us through your word this morning, and we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. So leadership is critical, we all know that. Often as leaders go, so go the people, whether that's in an organization, a church, or a nation. Uh, there are all kinds of great quotes about leadership, and there's one thought that's been attributed to several different people, Thomas Jefferson being one of them, but it says, uh, the government that you elect is the government that you deserve. Meaning that in a representative system like ours, if you have a leadership that is corrupt and immoral, it is simply a reflection of where the people in that nation are. And while that might sting a bit, I think we could probably relate with that. Now, when it comes to Israel, theirs was not a representative elected form of government. They were ruled over by kings. But what we find in Israel and with Judah is that the kings led the people astray and the people were often willingly led. You have fallen leaders leading a fallen people who fed each other's kind of depravity. And as we open up chapter 3, we know that although there were times in, in Judah, in the southern kingdom, where there were good kings and bad kings, where the people were kind of obedient for a time and then disobedient for a time, we know that as Micah speaks, he's speaking to a people who are walking in disobedience. Right now, as Micah is writing, the people are far from God, and he has serious warnings. And not only is he going to warn the people, but in particular, in chapter 3, he is going to warn the leadership. He's going to talk to the failed leaders, the failed rulers of Israel, not just the kings, but those who were called to lead them in all the areas of their lives, uh, judicially, politically, spiritually. He's going to talk to those who are in authority, and he's going to condemn them for their failure. And then chapter 4 is going to point toward this future ruler who is yet to come, who, who winds up being completely different than anything they had already experienced. But as we move into chapter 3... Uh, we're going to begin looking at these corrupt and failed leaders. And the first thing that we're going to see is that they fail in that they corrupt things like justice. Chapter 3, verse 1, And I said, Hear, you heads of Jacob, you rulers of the house of Israel. So once again, he's pointing at those who have authority. And he says, Is it not for you to know justice? You who hate the evil, or hate the good and love the evil, who tear the skin off my people, their flesh from their bones, who eat the flesh of my people and flay their skin from off of them. You break their bones in pieces and chop them up like meat in a pot, like flesh in a cauldron. Now, that is pretty graphic. It's a picture of a people who are supposed to care for and shepherd God's people Israel. Uh, who are supposed to give justice and fairness and rightness in their rulings. Remember, God gave his people his law. And the law did a couple of things. First of all, the law reveals the character of God. As God gives the law, he shows you what he is like. The holiness demanded in the law reflects the perfect holiness of God. And as that holiness is exposed, you see that you are not like God as you fail to meet the law. But the law was also given so that the people might treat each other with a sense of justice of community, of fairness, of righteousness in their dealings with each other. The law commanded you to act a certain way toward your neighbor. Your scales had to be balanced. You had to deal fairly in your business dealings. When it came to things like court cases, you had to have witnesses. You couldn't just make wild accusations. When it came to things like uh, sending sentences, justice for wrongs done, it wasn't just vengeance. It was a right punishment that fit the crime when they did it. And these people were supposed to shepherd, to care for, to tend God's people, to be a place of refuge and safety 
for them. The idea of shepherding God's people is all over, especially the prophets as he talks to their leaders. But instead of protecting them, instead of watching over them, instead of shepherding the flock of God as if it had been entrusted to them for safekeeping, uh, they're ripping it apart. That's the picture here. It's like wild animals ripping a people to shreds. Instead of shepherds that are caring for the flock, they're like wolves that are devouring it and destroying it. So what will happen to them? Look at verse 4. Then they will cry to the Lord, but he will not answer them. He will hide his face from them at that time because they have made their deeds evil. And you say, well, that's really mean. Why would God turn his back on people that cry out? That's not like the God that I believe in. And you have to understand that they're not crying out to him in repentance and humility. They're not crying out to him for forgiveness. They want help. When they are in power, they are abusing these people. They are tearing them apart. Uh, they have corrupted the idea of justice. It is solely bent on what brings them the best advantage. But God says the time is coming when they're going to be the ones that are oppressed. They're going to be the ones that are under difficulty. They're going to be the ones that are being torn apart. And God says at that time when they're in pain, they're going to cry out for help because they want rescue but they're going to find that God will treat them exactly as they treated the people. That is a sobering warning to hear that God will deal with you as you have dealt with others. And again, we know that where there's repentance and where there's humility and where there's genuine faith, God is quick to restore. We'll see that even in chapter 4 as God restores his, restores his people. But to understand that God sees their wickedness, even though they're in power, that God sees their injustice, even though it seems like they have the ability to do whatever they they want, should be a sobering warning to these leaders. And beginning in verse 5, the emphasis changes. Now it's not on the judicial leaders. Now it's not on kind of the, the justice side of things. Now it's on the spiritual leaders. And where the first group was twisting and corrupting and kind of perverting justice, now he talks about those who are corrupting prophecy, who would corrupt the word of the Lord. Look what he says in verse 5. Thus says the Lord concerning the prophets who lead my people astray, who cry peace when they have something to eat, but declare war against him who puts nothing in their mouths. Now, what does it mean to be a prophet? To be a prophet means that you speak on behalf of the Lord. God gave his word to his prophets, and their whole job was to say exactly what God had told them to say. It was not up to the prophet to determine what the message was. It was not up to the prophet to make the message more palatable. It was not up to the prophet to determine whether the people really should hear that at this time. God said, this is my word, and the prophet's whole duty was to say what God had said. And where they failed to do that, they were called false prophets to say that God had said something when he had not, or to fail to say what God had said, made them false prophets. And false prophecy was a big deal. We know, most of us know, that the penalty for being a false prophet was death. But why is it such a big deal? You have to understand that it's such a big deal because if you prophesy falsely, if you deal wrongly with what God says, then it's not just inconvenient. It's not just bad news for the nation. It's a corruption, and it's an attack on God's character. Imagine saying, thus says the Lord, this will happen, and then that thing doesn't come to pass, and it doesn't happen. Either God was lying, which makes him no longer good, no longer holy, or God was not powerful enough to accomplish what he wanted, which means he is no longer omnipotent, he's no longer God. To be a false prophet, you are directly attacking the nature and the character of God. That is why it was such a big deal, and 
Here, Micah is condemning those who are prophets. They lead his people astray. The, the whole point of the prophets was to speak the words of God so that the people might be directed and led back to God. When these men speak, they draw people away from God. Uh, lies, half-truths, never bring people toward the Lord. They always drive people away from the Lord. They wouldn't warn when God called them to warn. They'd give comfort when they needed to be called out for their sin, and it gets worse. It says they cry peace when they have something to eat, but they declare war against him who puts nothing in their mouths. What is that talking about? It's saying they basically turn prophecy into a profession. When you give them food, when you give them money, when you kind of donate to the ministry, we'll say, maybe that sounds a little more familiar to our ears, then they've got good news for you. When you fill their mouths with good things, they'll prophesy peace to you. Give them the right offering, God's got a good word for you. But if you put nothing in their mouths, well, then it's only bad news, and they declare war against him. No money, no good word from God. That is a despicable use of the gift that God had given in the prophets. And sadly, we still see that today, don't we? Send in the right amount, and God is sure to hear you. Donate to this ministry with this amount for this long, and God is sure to hear your prayer. Have enough faith, and God will surely give you whatever you desire. To speak with the authority of God carries with it the responsibility that God has actually spoken. So what's going to happen to them? Look at verse 6. Therefore it shall be night to you without vision and darkness to you without divination. The sun shall go down on the prophets and the day shall be black over them. Uh, understand uh, the, the uh, appropriate nature of the judgment here. Those who claim to see, those who claim to have light, those who claim to have understanding are going to be thrown into darkness. Just as those who are supposed to provide justice will cry out for help and find nothing, these ones who claim to have the understanding and the knowledge and the light are going to be thrown into complete and utter darkness. The day will be black over them. The seers shall be disgraced, the diviners put to shame, that shall all cover their lips, for there is no answer from God. In other words, there's a time coming when their false prophecies are going to be exposed. You can only preach peace so long when the gates are burning. And there's going to come a time when all the false prophets who are saying nothing will happen, nothing is going to happen, everything is fine, God will surely spare us. There's going to come a time when they are forced to realize the truth. Now we know, and I started last week by saying that these people listen to Micah. That during Micah's time, there's a change of heart. That Hezekiah the king leads the people in a return to God. And for the next hundred years, there's something of a restoration. But the time will come under the prophecy of Jeremiah when the people will be hardened again. When the false prophets will speak of peace, even though destruction is right at the door, there is going to come a time when all the false prophecy is exposed and when those who wanted honor for their position, who wanted money for their ability to speak for God, who took advantage of that, are going to be brought to shame and disgrace. But look at the contrast in verse 8. But as for me, I am filled with power, with the Spirit of the Lord, and with justice and might to declare to Jacob his transgression and Israel his sin. Micah, on the other hand, is filled with power. 
It's not his own power. He's filled with the power of God. Look at the contrast there. While the false prophets are going to be brought low and brought to shame, Micah is filled with power. They're filled with shame. He's filled with the Spirit. They're brought to weakness and shame and destruction and silence, and he's made able to speak the message that God had given him. And please note that it's not an easy message. He's not saying, I have the power to declare great things for Israel. What does he have the power to do? To declare to Jacob his transgression and to Israel his sin. He's got the ability through the power of God to speak the truth that God's people desperately need to hear. God does not equip his people to do what is comfortable and what is easy. God equips his people to do what is his will. To do what is right. We all know Philippians 4.13, right? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. What does God actually equip you to do all things in? All things that he has called you to. Specifically in that context, it's Paul's ability to live in plenty or in want. To be obedient in all circumstances. God has given you and I, God has given Micah the ability to do exactly what he has called you to do, despite how difficult the circumstances might be, despite how difficult the message might be, no matter how hard the people might be. Which ought to really make us think twice before we say, well, I can't do this because those people are so hard, because they are so callous, because they are so whatever it might be. If God has given us the message to speak, and he has, if God has called us to proclaim the gospel, and he has then the only condition we need for obedience is the power that God already supplies. And the final stanza in chapter 3 deals with the false leaders and their corruption of power in general. Look at verse 9. Hear this, you heads of the house of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel, who detest justice and make crooked all that is straight, who build Zion with blood and Jerusalem with iniquity. Kind of the central charge there is that they make crooked that is straight. They detest, they hate justice. They hate what is right and straight and righteous and true. And they make crooked the things that are straight. And we kind of all know people like that. The things that should be plain and clear, they twist and distort, sometimes subtly, sometimes not so subtly. Uh, to try and give it, get a politician to give a straight answer on something that we think ought to be straight and true and clear, it can be very difficult. And God was saying that these leaders, they take what ought to be straight, what ought to be without question, and they make it crooked. They twist it. They pervert it. And they build Zion with blood and Jerusalem with iniquity. See, they're building up their place, Zion, Jerusalem, a very real city, real walls, real defenses, real kings. They are making that city as strong as they can, but they're doing it in their own strength. They're doing it in blood and iniquity, blood and sin. They're, they're concentrating, they're collecting, they're expanding their power in sinful ways. So rather than find strength in obedience, their leaders are finding strength in corruption. Look at verse 11. Its heads give judgment for a bribe. Its priests teach for a price. Its prophets practice divination for money. So that's kind of a summary of where we've been already, right? Judgment for a bribe, that distorted justice. Priests giving religious instruction for a price. Prophets practicing divination for money. So that corruption that's there. And yet, look what they do in the middle of verse 11. Yet they lean on the Lord and they say, Is not the Lord in the midst of us? No disaster shall come upon us. Despite their rebellion, despite their outrageous disobedience, these people think that they are good with God. 
sin is so dangerous. It is so deceptive because it confuses us and convinces us that in the middle of our rebellion, God is fine with it. That somehow God is obligated to treat us the way we think that we should be treated. They're saying that despite what they're doing, nothing bad will happen after all. How could it? Right? They're in God's city. They're in Jerusalem, and God would never let anything happen to Jerusalem. They've got the temple, God's house. And after all, God would never let anything happen to his temple, would he? They're God's chosen people. They can trace their family's line all the way back to the tribes, all the way back to Abraham. And they assume that that heritage makes obedience optional. These people assume that God will overlook their sin because of their national history. And they forget that God is faithful and perfectly faithful to all of his promises. His promises to bless, absolutely. But also his promises to judge and to deal with the sins of his people. And so what's going to happen? Look at the next therefore in verse 12. Therefore, because of you, Zion shall be a plowed as a field. Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins and the mountain of the house a wooded height. Because of their arrogance, they're going to be brought down low. Because they tried to build their power to establish their strength with blood and iniquity, with blood and sin, they're going to be brought down in ruin and disgrace. And God reminds his own people that holiness matters. That he is not simply the God who demands holiness from the nation, but that he is the God who demands worship and obedience from his people. And the leaders of Israel and Judah have failed. The kings, the priests, the prophets, the ones who were supposed to lead them and shepherd them to care for them, they had devoured them, they had destroyed them, and they had led them into destruction. The people are going to follow their leaders directly into judgment. But again, that's not God's final word for his people. Because God is faithful to every promise that he makes. And we know that God has promised that the line of David won't fall. God has promised that his people aren't going to go completely to destruction. And for the sake of his name, one day God will act on all of those promises. There is a ruler coming in the future. And the ruler that is coming in the future will be nothing like the rulers that have come in Israel and Judah's past. And because he is different... The fate of his people is different. And the first thing that we're going to see as we open up chapter 4 that looks at this ruler that is yet to come, this future ruler, is that he is going to exalt a very particular place. Look at chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. It shall come to pass in the latter days. Micah is driving the focus forward. And it's not just in the next week or in the next year. He's not speaking of the immediate context of his historical situation. He's saying in the latter days. This phrase is used to drive things prophetically forward. Um, We talk about eschatology, which is a fancy theological word, but it means the study of the end times, to understand what is coming. And when he talks about this, he is talking about the things that are yet to come, those things that are going to come in the latter days. And how do we know when the latter days are here? When these things happen. These things characterize those last days for God's people. It says, It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains, and it shall be lifted up above the hills. The latter days are going to happen when the place called the mountain of the Lord, Zion, 
the house of the Lord are exalted and lifted up. Now, there's a picture on this next slide here, and this is of Mount Zion looking from the south. Some of you might recognize that. We went there a bit ago. And if you look carefully at that picture, if you look on the right-hand side there, kind of in the background, you can see the dome uh, of the rock. That is where the temple used to stand. That is the temple mount there. But this is looking up from the south toward the north, toward that part of Jerusalem there called Mount Zion. And what Micah is saying is that there's coming a time when this place will be exalted. Now remember how chapter 3 ended. How did chapter 3 end? Jerusalem, Zion, brought low made low, brought down in humility. Immediately, he says, in the latter days, things are going to change course. That when the king comes, what was brought low is exalted. Now, I absolutely 100% think that this is speaking of uh, kind of an importance, a prominence that is going to come But I also don't want to dismiss the physical aspect of this. If you look at that picture right there, you'll notice that it is on a high place. You'll also notice that there are a lot of other higher places around there. At several points in the prophets, we're told that there are physical changes that happen to this place. To where it is not only kind of politically exalted, not only metaphorically brought up, but where there are geographical changes that make this place higher than the surrounding areas. That's as Isaiah and Ezekiel and Zechariah all talk about that. Changes that allow not only the city to raise, but a prominence for a place, the temple, the house of the Lord. And where Jerusalem was like an abandoned field, that's how it talked about it at the end of chapter 3. Not only brought low, but abandoned. A place to be plowed for crops, a wooded height, the place where people are not there because the destruction has been so great. Now look what's going to happen. The mountain of the house of the Lord is going to be established as the highest of mountains. It will be lifted up above the hills and people will flow to it. Many nations shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Where Jerusalem was abandoned, it is going to be sought after by the nations, and they are not coming to buy cheap souvenirs on David Street there. They are coming to hear the word of the Lord. This talks about a time that is yet to come when Jerusalem will not be brought low in blood and iniquity. Remember, they tried to build it in blood and iniquity, but when it's raised up, what is it raised up in? Truth and righteousness. It's abandoned because of sin, and because of judgment, but there's a time coming when it will be restored because it's built on the law and righteousness. Sin destroys and righteousness raises up. And in the latter days, it says people will stream to Jerusalem because at this time, at this coming time, Jerusalem itself will be a center for worship and instruction. Now, we have to ask, have we seen that yet? We haven't. This does not happen when Israel is brought back from the exile. When Cyrus decrees that the people can return after their 70 years in captivity, you don't see Jerusalem being a place that the nations flock to. You don't see this establishment of Jerusalem as a center for learning of the word of God, the nations streaming to hear the word of the Lord. It doesn't even happen in the church, I'm going to say. There's specific references not to a people, but to all people. Not to a people that they're coming to see, but to a particular city and even to the house of the Lord that they are coming to see, a particular place, God's temple. And I want you to keep that in mind because, again, the prophets continue to expand on this, particularly Zechariah when he talks about the one who is going to reign from his temple. 
This latter-day scene happens when Jesus comes to rule from his temple over his city, over his people, and not only his people, but all the nations that are rightly called his inheritance. And again, I know there are not only a lot of views when it comes to eschatology, but there's kind of a general, uh, maybe kind of hesitancy to study it, because after all, it's confusing, and who can know it? Uh, Understand that God doesn't leave it in his word simply to be mysterious or to give believers something to argue over on Facebook. God puts it here, and the prophets speak about it in the way that they do so that we might actually hear and understand. God reveals this to us so that we can see his marvelous plan for restoration, not only for his people, but for the nations. And when the king comes, he exalts his city and his place. And the second thing that happens when the king comes is not only is it an extended place, but there's an extended peace. What happened when all the sinful leaders were leading in chapter 3? Chaos, corruption, destruction, warfare. But look what happens when this coming king rules. Verse 3, he shall judge between many peoples and shall decide disputes for strong nations far away. This coming king is going to act as a righteous judge. Micah condemned the failed judges of Israel, but he's pointing to one who is going to come, who's going to be a righteous judge, not only for his people, but for the nations. And again, I want us to read this carefully. Look at how he describes it. He is going to judge between many peoples and decide disputes for strong nations far away. This is talking about a time to come when the Lord himself decides disputes not only between men, but between nations. Whenever this is talking about, there are nations. And there are nations that are far away. And there are nations that are still in dispute. This is different than the eternal state we're talking about. This is a time when the king is ruling over his creation, over his earth. And not only are there nations, but those nations have problems between one another in the very same way that they do now. The only problem, the only difference is they won't solve it by going to war. They'll solve it by going to the ultimate authority. Because the difference is that the king of kings is present and his authority is absolutely unquestionable. And what happens when you have an absolute ruler who is an absolutely perfect judge? The answer is peace. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. If you don't have to fight to settle the dispute, you don't need the tools of war anymore. That's what he's talking about. Those tools, tools of war, swords and spears, get used for something productive. Plowshares, pruning hooks, things for uh, shepherding, for growing, for prosperity. If you remember back in Joel, we actually saw the reverse of that image. Joel says at the beginning of the day of the Lord, when the nations are called to battle against his people, when they come in hatred towards Israel, God says, all right, nations, prepare yourself for war. Uh, beat your plowshares and your pruning hooks into swords and shields and get ready. And then he executes justice and judgment on the nations. But as he rules and reigns, as he mediates the disputes, now there's no need for that. Because nation will not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. But they shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one will make them afraid. By the way, Isaiah 2 uses that same phrase, the same words, almost identical to the opening of Micah chapter 4. And remember, Isaiah and Micah are prophesying about the same time. It's fascinating how God continues to give these ideas and these powerful pictures and images to his people. But right now, and really throughout all of human history, nations have been at war. What did Jesus tell his disciples in Matthew 24, if you can remember that far back when we went through Matthew's gospel? 
And you come to that Olivet Discourse and they say, so tell us what is going to be the sign of your coming and the end of the age. Jesus, how are we going to know when the end is the end and when you're coming back? And what does he tell them? He says, you're going to hear of wars and rumors of wars and famines and earthquakes in various places. In other words, you're going to have trouble until the end. The idea that nations rise against nations and kingdoms against kingdom is a characteristic of human existence because human leaders are fallen. They're failed. We settle disputes through war and violence and the strong win. But there's a time coming when every man will live in peace under his vine and under his fig tree. Again, that's how Joel pictures this time of prosperity and peace in the day of the Lord. And it doesn't come because of better education. It doesn't come because of better politicians. It doesn't come because of better people. In fact, if you try to look for these outcomes and base them on human action, human reasoning, human power, this never happens. Why does any of this happen? Look at the end of verse 4. For the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. Do you know why these seemingly impossible things happen? Because God says that they will. And because God has the authority and the ability to accomplish every single one of his purposes throughout all of human history. Isaiah says it this way in Isaiah 46, beginning in verse 8. Isaiah writes, Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old. For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all of my purposes. I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed and I will do it. Guys, when God commands, nothing can thwart that. When God wills, nothing can corrupt that. The absolute sovereign God of the universe has absolute sovereign control over the affairs of men, of nations, of all of human history. Look at verse 5. For the peoples walk each in the name of its God, but we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. When the Prince of Peace comes, his people are transformed. It is not because Israel finally unlocks the hidden Bible codes that they were missing. It is not because they finally get the right amount of education and figure it out. It is not because uh, they pull themselves up by their bootstraps and vow to do better and be better. But when God restores his people physically, it is because they are restored spiritually. We've talked about this over and over in the prophets. There is no physical restoration without spiritual restoration. And there's coming a time when God's people will be radically transformed from rebellion to obedience. When they will say that they will not only worship the Lord, but that they will walk in the name of the Lord forever and ever. Think of Israel's history. What would happen? Good king, obedient people, worship, and then the next guy comes and the whole thing falls apart. And within the matter of less than a generation, they're building idols in high places and sacrificing children and the whole thing spirals downhill. And then someone will come and clean it up and there will be restoration for a little while. And it's this cycle of obedience and rebellion and destruction and rescue that's going to stop. There's a time coming when God so radically changes his people that their obedience is drawn out of a love for him. Their hearts are transformed and they are made able to follow him. 
when they follow after their king. And Micah 4 closes really with this long extended look at the eternal power of the king. The kings of Israel extended power, and really all human rulers uh, have power, but only for a time. There's someone coming who is going to exert and have a completely different kind of power. Where the wicked rulers brought destruction, this coming king is going to bring exaltation. Where the wicked rulers abuse their power, this coming king is going to bring justice and healing to the oppressed. Look at verse 6. In that day, in what day? In the latter day, in the day when all of these other things are happening, in that day, declares the Lord, I will assemble the lame and gather those who have been driven away and those whom I have afflicted. And the lame I will make the remnant and those who are cast off a strong nation. And the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from this time forth and forevermore. There's coming a time when the ones that God disciplined are restored when those that through his discipline were made lame are now bound up and brought close. When those who are cast off are no longer the cast-offs, when the remnant is pictured like a strong nation. And the Lord is going to reign over them in Mount Zion from this time forth and forevermore. Again, a reference to the place where he will rule over them from. And no matter how good your king was in Israel's history, they still died. Hezekiah was a good king, but he died. And when the good king died, you never knew what was coming next. This king is not like that. His power is not temporary. His power is not limited to a human lifespan. His power is bound up in his nature, and he is eternal. And he will rule from this time forth and forevermore. And you, O tower of the flock, hill of the daughter of Zion, to you shall it come. The former dominion shall come, kingship for the daughter of Jerusalem. There's a time coming when Jerusalem, who has no king, will have a king again. And now Micah's going to kind of contrast this with where they are right now. Look at verse 9. Now why do you cry aloud? Is there no king in you? Has your counselor perished? The pain seized you like a woman in labor? Writhe and groan, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in labor. For now you shall go out from the city and dwell in the open country. You shall go to Babylon. Micah says there's a time for justice, and that is happening. Jerusalem is going to cry out like a woman in labor. Um, I cannot say that I personally experienced it, but I have been in close proximity. And labor does not seem to be a comfortable time. In fact, it seems to be quite painful. A pain that builds and a pain that is almost unbearable. Um, and God says, you are going to experience those pains like a woman in labor, but that's not the final word. Because he says, there you shall be rescued. There the Lord will redeem you from the hands of your enemies. You're going to go out. You're going to be exiled. You're going to be scattered. But it's from that scattering that you're going to be brought back, that you're going to be redeemed. They're going to groan, but there will be a time when they're rejoicing. Verse 11 says, Now many nations are assembled against you, saying, Let her be defiled, and let our eyes gaze upon Zion. The nations are gathering. They're planning for the destruction of Jerusalem, uh, but the nations are planning in ignorance. They only see a weak and helpless people. But verse 12 says, They do not know the thoughts of the Lord. They do not understand his plan. Now, we need to understand that for a moment. 
the plan of God includes the judgment of his people. The plan of God includes dealing seriously with Israel's sin. The plan of God includes the exile, the bringing low, the discipline. But the plan of God also includes strengthening his people against their enemies. That's what he finishes with. They don't understand his plan that he's gathered them as sheaves to the threshing floor. Arise and thresh, O daughter of Zion, for I will make your horn iron and I will make your hooves bronze, and you shall beat in pieces many peoples and shall devote their gain to the Lord, their wealth to the Lord of the whole earth. See, there's coming a time when God is going to strengthen his people so that they can overcome their enemies. Israel does not win. Israel does not overcome because of their own power, but because of his. And I love what this says is that when they do overcome these enemies, they devote the spoils of war back to worship. In Israel's history, every time they had military success, do you know what happened? It was the doorway to pride. God would deliver them, and they would get comfortable and spiritually fat and lazy. And they would seek alliances and power from everywhere else. Israel assumed that when they won, it was because they did the right things politically or militarily. That they got the right number of horses and chariots and soldiers. That they had the right alliances. There's coming a time when God strengthens them. And when they win, they'll devote their gain to the Lord, their wealth to the Lord of the whole earth. There's coming a time when Israel overcomes and they respond in worship. When what they gain becomes... Worship to the Lord and not just gain for them. So as we wrap up chapter 3 and chapter 4, I think we have to ask the question of uh, how do we know? How do we know that this is going to happen? Because let's face it, none of that seems possible, does it? Doesn't all of that sound just a little bit far out there? I mean, can God really restore a people as hard-hearted and rebellious as Israel? Is there ever going to really be a time when the whole earth recognizes the authority of one king? Is there really a time when we can anticipate peace on earth? Well, if the answer to any of those questions is up again to the power and the wisdom of people like you and me, then the answer is no. They would remain an impossible fantasy, really. But God is faithful. How do we know? Because the Bible is a consistent record of God's faithfulness to accomplish all of his purposes despite human rebellion. Think of it. God said that he would take one man and turn him into a great nation and that through him all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And what do we see? We see that God is faithful. He said that he would bring a people into a promised land, not by their power, but by his power. And God is faithful. He said that he would deliver them from impossible circumstances, and he was faithful. He said that he would discipline them when they sinned, up to the point of driving them out of his land, and he was faithful. He said that a baby would be born, that a son would be given. He said that someone was coming by whose stripes we would be healed, who would be crushed for our iniquities, who would be cursed for our rebellion. And God was faithful. And he also said that that one who was crushed and cursed, abused and outcast, would one day be the King of kings and Lord of lords. 
the Prince of Peace of whose government there was no end, the one to whom all the nations would bow because they were his inheritance, the one before whom every knee would bow and every tongue would confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And guess what? God is still faithful. So here's some things for us to consider before we leave today. First of all, you got to ask the question, who's following you? And if they're following you, what are they following? Now, this might be in your workplace. It might be here in the church in any number of circumstances and settings. It might be in your home. As the leader goes, so go the people. And believers, we are not called to lead in any capacity on our own strength, whether that is in the workplace, in the church, or in the home. We are not saying, follow me for the greatness of me. We're saying, follow me only as I follow Christ. I'm going to take a moment to plead with the fathers in particular, whether your children are not yet here or grown and out of your house, consider well how you lead your families. Second, the delusion of disobedience. Let's ask the question, are you good with God? That's kind of a flippant way to put it, but it's how our society really talks about it. And again, one of the most deadly things about sin is that it is so deceptive. Sin convinces me that at the end of the day, I'm not that bad. I might not be perfect, but at least I'm not as bad as fill in the blank, and you can always find someone to fill in the blank. Sin tells us that because I've been in church for a long time and I know all the words to all the songs, that because my parents came to church and were Sunday school teachers, because my grandpa was a preacher, because I came out of the womb wearing an Awani uniform, whatever the case may be, that somehow because of my history I must be good with God. After all, I'm so familiar with all of this. Your relationship with God is not based on your history and certainly not on your family's history. Right relationship to God is only found through His way. Through recognizing that your sin, my sin, our failure separated us from Him. And there is nothing that you and I could do to be good with God. But that Jesus Christ did what we could not He was righteous and we were fallen and failed, but He died so that we might live. You want to answer that question, am I good with God? The only acceptable answer is if Christ is your substitute. If He stood in your place, you are good with God if you are covered with His goodness and not your own. And finally, I think we need the reminder that He is still faithful. That that God who spoke through centuries past, that God who worked in human history is still faithful to accomplish every single one of those impossible promises that he has made. And I think a lot of times we look at the promises of human history and uh, peace and a king to come to rule over all the nations, and those seem impossible, but we don't think about those every day probably. Sometimes those promises that seem the most impossible are the much more pressing ones like, where am I going to get money this next week? After all, God promised to provide, but I don't see how that's going to happen. Or God promised things like 
love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control, but my situation seems to make it impossible for those things to actually be produced. Can you and I be reminded that the God who promised those things is still faithful? That through His power, He still accomplishes everything that He has purposed. And that God is still faithful to forgive what we would consider the impossible because maybe you're looking at this from the other side. Maybe you're not assuming you're good with God. Maybe you're understanding that you're so bad, so wretched, so other than that God could not possibly restore you. This God is still faithful. Faithful and powerful and righteous and just to deal with sin, but sovereign and powerful and merciful enough to forgive, to forgive you of that to cleanse you and redeem you from that and to make you able to obey through obedience to have the peace and the joy and the fellowship with him. Let's pray. Lord, your good and your steadfast, faithful love is a blessed constant, not only in our lives, but in all of human history. God, what a reminder to see that you will deal with the sins of your people, that it matters to you how your people walk, but that, Lord, you are quick to forgive. That where there's repentance, where there's the seeking of forgiveness, you promise to forgive, to separate our sin from us. Lord, you've placed our guilt on Christ. And as the song we sang said, all his righteousness is ours. And so we don't come to you on our own goodness and our own strength. We come covered in the righteousness of Christ. And Lord, we, we look for a time when you will rule and reign. You're not off the throne. You've never been out of control. But Lord, we look for the time when the nations are given to Christ as an inheritance. We long to be in the presence of the King. And so Lord, we pray, come quickly. But Lord, should you delay another year, 10 years, or 100 years, make us faithful to obey you every day until you return. Save our neighbors, save our children, save our coworkers, save our families through our faithful gospel proclamation and through the power of the gospel. And Lord, keep our eyes fixed on you and on our eternal hope. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.